This morning we are going to focus our attention upon Ephesians chapter 3, verse 3 on the mystery doctrine, the revelation of God's mystery doctrine. And so we are reminded of the grace of God and the gospel of God, which is also, Paul says, part of this mystery. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, but he who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Because we know that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even so we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we might be justified by faith in him and not by the works of the law, for by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. It's not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us, by the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Before we open God's word together, let's bow our heads and go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, again, we're thankful for another day, another opportunity to learn your word, another opportunity to glorify you, another opportunity to grow spiritually, to have our priorities reoriented according to your priorities for our lives and our thinking transformed by the renewal of your word. So, Father, we pray that as we study today, we may come to understand that these things that you have revealed, recorded, and preserved down through the centuries are vital for our understanding, for our spiritual life, and to rethink our perspective on life. And we do this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, let's open our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3, verse 3. And as I said, we're looking at the mystery doctrine. This whole section is dealing with this term, the mystery doctrine. And this is, as I have said before, is the, has the idea of new revelation, not revelation that has been revealed before even a little bit. It was, as we'll learn, in the secret counsels of God. He gave no hints. Although when we look back at the Old Testament, we see that it, is perfectly, uh, it, it perfectly coordinates, it is perfectly consistent with the Old Testament revelation, but it was not even hinted at. And we'll talk about that as we go through the lesson. Why is it that God does that? So let's just remind ourselves of where Paul is going in this passage, thinking our way through what he says. And in verse 1, he says, for this reason, and that is a term that takes us back to what he has said in chapter 2, specifically 11 through 22. And in 11 through 22, he talks about how the, the Gentiles had been uh, separated from the Jews, that they were uh, distanced from the uh, the prophecies, they were distanced from the promises of God, from the covenants of God, and as a result of that, there was a barrier because of the law between Jew and Gentile 
as well as a sin barrier between Gentiles and Jews and God. And so this, both of these barriers are then broken down because of the cross, through the cross, through the death of Christ. And so they will, they will no longer be strangers uh, from the covenants of promise. And that is true for us today. Now, what happens is I have been teaching through this now for quite some time, starting back in 211, which was probably six or seven, maybe more months ago than that. But this is, Paul is so emphasizing this. He spends half of chapter 2 and all of chapter 3 working out the implications of that. That's a lot of words and a lot of scripture. And God clearly believes that this is necessary for us to understand in our spiritual life, not something that's just some sort of theological doctrine that's great uh, by and by, but it is in Paul's thinking and God's thinking This is how we should think about situations that occur in life. This is fundamental. It's foundational. It's necessary. Sometimes I think in in our modern world, the world tells us what our priorities should be. The world tells us what our problems, how our problems should be identified and what our real problems are. And the world tells us how those solutions should come about and, and what those solutions should be. And so you see in so many, many churches today, you see these uh, sermons that are built on what they call felt needs. Well, who feels those needs? And I, I think that a lot of those felt needs have their origin in our sin nature. What happens when we come to Scripture is we learn that uh, God tells us what the problems are, and he tells us how we should be thinking about the situations in life, what our priorities should be. And for many people, priorities are problems that the job, people today, so many are worried about uh, about this pandemic. They're worried that they're going to get sick, they're going to die. There's just such fear everywhere. People focus on financial problems. How am I going to pay the bills? How am I going to go forward? But people who focus on all of these different problems, and yet God says those aren't the real problems and that's not the real issue and those solutions are tertiary at best. We have to think about life differently. We have to think about God's plan and purpose for our life differently. And, and that's what's going on here because, as I pointed out, Paul is going to leave this verse and he's going to take what appears to be a diversion, but it's really not, from verses 2 down through verse 12. In verse 12, he's, or 13 actually, uh, he is going to give us the application of what he says from 2 through 12. And this is not something you're going to hear from a lot of pulpits today where you go by and they have their marquees out front and they talk about the message having to do with five ways to improve your marriage or eight ways to uh, be financially successful or or, 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 or ten ways to have uh, your full uh, full life now. Your uh, and, and all of these different kinds of things. And so Paul concludes this. Lengthy digression into the mystery teaching, the teaching about mystery, about this mystery in the New Testament. And he says, therefore, as a result of your knowing these things, I ask that you do not lose heart at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. And that's a great point of application. What I pointed out before, we'll review it again uh, next week, but... uh, 
or in the next lesson, uh, that this is the mystery doctrine rationale. And so we have to understand what that is because it's, as I've pointed out the last couple of weeks, it's not something that most of us have gone to, uh, myself included. But that's what Paul is doing here. And so it's based on the fact that, uh, as he says in verse uh, verse 2, that it's going to be based upon his commission as an apostle and his mission in terms of his apostolic message. It's based on the fact that he's commissioned as an apostle and that that is specifically to the Gentiles. Although I keep pointing it out because people don't always get it. That doesn't exclude ministry to the Jews. But it was primarily to the Gentiles. And Paul is the one who exposes more about this mystery teaching because it's related to this new body, uh, this new man, this new body, this new temple where Jew and Gentile are united together in Christ. And so that is his message, his ministry that is the foundation for this. And we've looked at this in Ephesians 3, 2, where he says, If indeed you have heard of the dispensation, and then I pointed out that it's not the dispensation of grace, but it's the dispensation or the dispensing of something, the administration of something. We'll look at those words a little bit more in a minute. Uh, The grace of God which was given to me for you. That's the phrase that has to be locked down. And we saw that as that's developed later on when we get down, uh, I believe it is down into, um, down in, in, in three, it's down into verse seven, uh, of which I became a minister according to, there's the phrase, the gift of the grace of God given to me. And so this isn't just saving grace. It isn't just the, what I call the, the gospel related to, uh, phase one salvation, how to be saved from the uh, penalty of sin. It is related to the fullness of the gospel, which is to give us the fullness and the abundance uh, of life. And so the mission of and message of the apostle is what's described by this particular phrase. So it's the dispensation of the grace of God, which was given to to. To me, And I pointed out that in dispensationalism, the way in which the King James and New King James Version have translated this word, oikonomia, uh, has caused a little bit of a, of a misunderstanding or misappropriation of this verse. It's not really talking about the church age as a dispensation of grace. It is the dispensation of grace, but this isn't the verse you go to for that. Uh, so we talked last time about this idea of what is a dispensation, because that's an archaic word now. Uh, it is not used that much, and a lot of people wonder just exactly what it means. You can ask people, well, do you believe in dispensations? Do you believe in dispensationalism? And so many are so poorly taught that they, ha- they, they do, but, but they don't know the vocabulary. And the, this comes from the Latin word dispensatio, which means to deal out to weigh out, to dispense something, or to distribute something. And that, this is a very interesting concept. Now, I know some people don't get all caught up in words, but words communicate ideas, and specific words communicate specific ideas, and all ideas have consequences, as we know. So this is that idea, that this, and it has to do with administration. 
So uh, I did a little more thinking on that. Last week I used a definition I got from the Webster's Third New International Dictionary that a, a dispensation has to do with three things that they point out here. It's a divine ordering and administration of worldly affairs. And that's how we usually define dispensations, is that in different periods of time, God administers or oversees the affairs of human history in different ways. Now, there are some things that stay the same, but there are some things that are different. For example, in the first age, the first age called the age of the Gentiles, there are three dispensations. The first is perfect environment. There is no sin. Thus, there's no need for a gospel. There's no need for salvation, but there's a need for obedience. And that dispensation ended with the fall of Adam. That ended because of sin. And so there are new things that come in. And when God speaks to the serpent and he speaks to Eve and he speaks to Adam, he isn't completely negating the responsibilities he gave to Adam and Eve in Genesis 1, 26 to 28. But he is saying that if those things are modified now, you were to rule over the planet, you were to rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. But now because of sin, that's going to be difficult. There's going to be problems. Uh, they were to be fruitful and multiply, but now that's not only going to have uh, pleasurable aspects, there's going to be difficult aspects. There's going to be consequences, especially for the woman, uh, as a result of the, of the, uh, of sin. And there's going to be, uh, late increased pain and, uh, difficulty at, at childbirth. And, and for the man, he's going to be responsible for, uh, for, uh, tilling the earth for working the earth but he'll be outside of the garden and there are going to be thorns and thistles and all of these other things that are going to come up and it's going to he's going to work by the sweat of his brow now and so there are some things that are the same but some things that are different and i can go on and trace that all the way through history salvation has certain things that are the same it is always by faith alone it is not faith plus works. It is not faith plus a certain kind of works or fruitfulness afterwards. It is just simply trusting in God's promise. In the Old Testament, God's promise was, I'm going to provide a Savior in the future. The seed of the woman first indicated, hinted at in Genesis 3.15, I'm going to provide the seed of the woman who will defeat the seed of the serpent. And so as you see, as you go through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, more and more is added to the understanding of this promise of the seed. But it is still a trust in God to provide salvation through a future deliverer, the Messiah. Once that future deliverer came, that is the Lord Jesus Christ, when he was entered into human history, and then when he entered into his public ministry, he is proclaiming the same gospel, uh, teaching those that were alive then, like Nicodemus in John chapter 3, that they have to be born again to see the kingdom of God. And that is what he said, you have to be born again because you're spiritually dead, which is what Paul talks about at the beginning of our study in Ephesians 2, that we are all born spiritually dead, which means that we are alienated from the life of God. doesn't mean we're a spiritual corpse. It means we're alienated from the life of God. And we must have that life. And so what Jesus is telling Nicodemus is that you have to be born again. You have to receive this new life. And as we studied in the first part of this chapter, of chapter 2 rather, 
This is what Paul highlights, is that when we trust in Christ as Savior, God, first of all, makes us alive together in Christ. That's regeneration. And then he raises up us together and he seats us together in the heavenlies. Now, we're going to come back talk about that a little more because it specifically re- relates uh, to what we see in verse 6, that part of this mystery doctrine is that the Gentiles should be joint heirs of the same body and partakers of the same promise in Christ through the gospel. So what we see in dispensations is that God administers or dispenses his grace, his goodness in different ways, but it's always the same, even though there are some differences in the Old Testament, that faith alone in the promise of the future deliverer alone. But now it is faith alone in the fulfillment of that promise, the promise of the gospel that that Christ has come, the Messiah has come, and he paid for our sins. And so there are things that stay the same and and things that are different. Uh, A a second meaning that Webster's gives is that it's a system of principles, promises, and rules divinely ordained and administered. Now, we have to look at the meaning of that word minister, which we'll look at in just a minute. But that really has the idea of dispensing something or applying something. And then the third is a period of history during which a particular divine revelation has predominated in the affairs of mankind. I thought that was just absolutely brilliant observation from a secular dictionary that it's, it, it takes place within a period of time. The word dispensation doesn't particularly mean a period of time. It means an administration. But it, it takes place within a period of time, uh, with, and it is God's way of overseeing human history. So we saw that a dispensation takes place in time, but it isn't necessarily related to time in terms of the core meaning, the semantic value of the word. And then uh, I have two other things, two other dictionary words to look at. The word dispense, just look at the highlighted number two meaning, is to prepare and distribute something. As in medicine, you dispense medicine. And so you go to a doctor's office and you're sick and the doctor gives you a prescription. He is dispensing or administering medication. But what's interesting is if you look down to the second part of the slide, uh, I looked at, looked the word administer up in, uh, uh, dictionary.com and it gives as a couple of meanings the idea to bring into use or operation. So what Paul is doing as the administrator is he's bringing something into operation. What is he bringing into operation? He's bringing into operation the teaching that is revealed now in this mystery doctrine that Jew and Gentile are now together united in one uh, new man, one new body, and one new temple. Second, it, it has the idea of making application of something. So Paul is about, this is all about applying to real life situations the significance of the mystery doctrine. That's important because it fits the, the, the context here. Remember verse, verse 13 says, Paul says, therefore I ask you not to lose heart. Don't get discouraged. Don't give up. Don't give up no matter what trials, tests, problems you face in life. Don't give up because God is doing something in this dispensation, this time period that is phenomenal. That is phenomenal. And Paul's job is to apply that, help them to understand why it is phenomenal. So it's, it's telling us, folks, 
if you don't think this is application, then the problem isn't with me. The pro- it might be. I'm just may not be a good communicator. Uh, the problem is usually with most of us. We think application is off in these other areas, and God is saying, "No, you got to get a lot deeper. You got to think more profoundly, because if you get your thinking right at this more fundamental level, then you'll understand why that changes uh, how you think about your marriage. It changes how you think about your money." It, it changes how you think about the priorities of your life. It changes everything. But So we have to get to these fundamentals. This is where real application uh, takes place. But, of course, we have the naysayers around in many, many churches that say, oh, no, no, you don't need all that doctrine. You don't need all that teaching. You need something that's much more practical. For the Apostle Paul, therefore, for God, nothing is more practical than learning uh, this this material. So the concept of this word uh, dispensation has to do with the administration or the dispensing of what God has revealed in each particular uh, time period in which he is administering uh, human, human history. So we can define a dispensation as a stewardship that involves a responsibility, an administration that is a dispensing of information, a dispensing of how God's grace is used during that time, the application of the word to life, and the management of property. The property is now we are now God's. We've been bought with a price, so we are now his, and so we have to understand how to manage our lives. And so that involves accountability and faithfulness on the part of the steward to God, not to one another, not to the church, but to God. So this is the idea of a dispensation as a distinct and identifiable administration in the development of God's plan and purposes for human history. So we've looked at verse 1, we've looked at verse 2, and now I want you to look at verse 2 and 3 together in this slide because this shows the relationship of verse 3, which is the section on the lower left of the slide, to verse 2. All of this is part of one sentence. In fact, all the way down through seven is part of one sentence. And so it started off, as I pointed out, with this conditional statement at the beginning, if indeed you have heard, and according to the Greek, this kind of construction is a first-class condition, which means if, and we're assuming it's true that you've heard it, why does Paul assume that? Because Paul spent uh, somewhere between two and three years at teaching in Ephesus. And as he's taught in Ephesus, he knows that he's taught all this material before. And so he says, if indeed you have heard and you have heard it. And then there's that phrase or that clause actually that comes after it of the dispensation of the grace of God which was given to me for you. This is all about his apostolic commission, his apostolic mission, his apostolic message. And we've talked about that quite a bit. But the next verse, verse 2 starts off. In the New King James, it translates one word, how that. I think that's awkward. I don't think that's the best way to translate it. It should just simply be translated with the single word, that. And in Greek as in English, this word indicates the content of the verb, content of what they heard. Okay, so first of all, you have heard, and he talks about his ministry, his mission, but he, there's a second explanation of the, of the content, and that is this, that by revelation 
he made known to me, that is God, made known to me the mystery as I have briefly written already. So the main clause here, the main clause here is, if indeed you have heard that by revelation, he made known to me the mystery as I have briefly written already. And so uh, we look at verse 3, and we start off looking at a couple of uh, textual issues that come up here, which is why some translations may read a little differently than the King James or the New King James. The first has to do with this first word that is translated that, and the second has to do with the verb made known. Okay, so we'll just look at the first one. That's the simpler one. In some ancient manuscripts, the Greek word here is left out. And some people may say, well, that's not so important. Well, I think it is because of the function of this word. It indicates the content of the verb. You've heard what? You've heard what's the content of what you've heard? And that content is this revelation that has come. And so this this word in the Greek is the word hadi, and it introduces the content of what was heard. Now, this is in most manuscripts, both the critical text, as you're familiar, uh, there's two different views to textual criticism. There's the view that uh, the critical text, which is basically, and this is a gross oversimplification, but, but it's, it's basically true, that older is better. So the oldest manuscripts are more accurate. And the basic problem with that is you can have a 4th century manuscript that is flawed, and so it's not as good as a ninth century manuscript that faithfully accurately copies a third century manuscript that is older than the fourth century manuscript. So it, it really is a misnomer to think, oh, older is better. Uh, older is not necessarily better. It's interesting because of a question I was asked recently that if you look at the Dead Sea Scrolls, Dead Sea Scrolls are, are written somewhere around 200, 100, uh, before Christ, okay? And then you look at the oldest manuscripts we had on which the Hebrew Bible is based because in the Jewish cu- culture, in the scribal culture, when a manuscript became old or if you made a mistake in copying a manuscript, you were to burn the older manuscript, you were to burn the manuscript where there was a mistake. So they were very, very faithful. They were very diligent and obsessive. They counted every word, every syllable, every every. A letter on every page, and so they 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 could easily quickly spot if there was if there was a mistake if a letter was left out if a word was left out uh, th- those things happen and when when we discovered the Qumran scrolls uh, in 1948 and they began to investigate them one scroll was intact that was the Isaiah scroll. And one of the scholars who looked at it noted that there were a number of minor differences, word order, spelling, things of that nature. But he said, he said there's about uh, there's about 17 or 18, I forget the exact number, that are really significant. And he at that time said they should all be included in our uh, and revise our our Hebrew text. After 10 years of study, he said, now none of those should be accepted. So here he's got an older, thousand-year-older document uh, from Qumran, manuscript from Qumran, that is basically 99.9% the same as the Masoretic text of, of the eighth, uh, ninth century A.D. 
and and initially thought, well, we ought to go with the older one because it's probably better. And then afterwards, as a result of study for a lot of different reasons, he discarded all of those differences and said, no, we have a better copy. This is a better, better based on a number of different factors. So older is not necessarily better. That take and and the major so the the alternate view is the majority text, which is the vast majority of manuscripts will record the the accurate reading, and that too is an oversimplification. Now we this is really doesn't change the word meaning a lot. You have two variants in uh, the documents. One is to take the word made known as passive. So in New American Standard, NIV, ESV, these other translations that are based on the uh, based on the critical text, they will say um, that it's by revelation the mystery. So that word becomes the subject. In, in the Greek, the form of the word mysterion is the same, whether it's in the accusative case or the nominative case, the subject or the accusative. So it can switch around. So you, it could be this way. Uh, the verb, uh, mystery, the, the, uh, that by revelation the mystery was made known to me. Well, who made it known? Well, the one who made it known isn't stated, but it's assumed it's God. But in the, again, in the majority of manuscripts, in the majority text, it's an active voice verb uh, where the subject would be he. It's a third person singular. He made known to me the mystery. Now, what I like about this is the, the word order that you have in the, in the King James or the New King James. First of all, it, it introduces the content of what they heard. Next thing it does, by the, you see, you could change this around and you can say that he made known to me by revelation the mystery. Or you could say that, uh, he made known to me by revelation the mystery. All of those are acceptable, but I think that there's clarity in putting it in this word order in the English. That first of all, it tells us how Paul learned this. It's by revelation. Secondly, it tells us who did the revealing. It was God. And how did he do it? He made it known. That's a knowledge word, not an emotion word. It's not a feeling word. He didn't make me feel it. He made it known to me. What did he make known? The mystery. So I think this word order is the best word order for clarification. And so we have this first word that we have to understand because it emphasizes the fact that this is what Paul is teaching didn't come from Paul. He didn't originate it. It was according to a standard, literally in the Greek, it is kata, uh, the preposition which denotes the standard. And the standard is always uh, God speaking to us, disclosing to us uh, information that we would not otherwise be aware of and couldn't arrive at through our own rational capacities or through our experience. It is, I'll talk about that in just a minute, but this is what Paul says in other places. For example, in Galatians 1.12, Paul says, For I neither received it, that is the gospel, the revelation of the gospel. He says, I didn't receive it from man. He said, no human being gave me this information. Nor was I taught it. He's not, no human teaches it to him. But it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. 
And that happened on the road to Damascus where Jesus Christ revealed himself and revealed to Paul the gospel, something he'd heard many times before and denied many times before. Now he has the greatest revelation of it all in that uh, appearance of Christ on the road to Damascus. And so this is a word that is used some 13 times in Paul's epistles, 19 times in the whole New Testament. So the vast majority are Pauline. He, he really emphasizes the importance of this disclosure from God. And God is the one who is unveiling something. That's the basic idea. In the noun form, it is refers to a revelation, a body of revelation, or a disclosure or an unveiling. The verb has the idea of, of disclosing something, unveiling something, exposing something, revealing something, unveiling something. The opposite is to make it obscure, to cover it, to hide it. So this is to expose and to reveal something. A good parallel, or not exactly parallel, but a, a, a passage that enhances this is in Romans 16.25. This is in Paul's uh, closing comments, his benediction, uh, his prayer to God at the end of Romans, Romans uh, the epistle to Romans. He says, now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the proclamation of Jesus Christ. Now, the way it's written is those two are identical. It's not like Paul's got his own gospel. It is that which was proclaimed by Jesus Christ. And it's according to a standard. Same phrase, same uh, prep, uh, uh, same preposition that we have here that we have in, in Ephesians, uh, according to a standard that is the revelation, the unveiling of what? Of the mystery that is previously unrevealed information. That what? That had been kept secret since the world began. Now, that's what we're talking about this morning is what is this mystery? When, when did it happen? How did it happen? Why did it happen? And this gives us a clue by the context what the mystery was. It's something that was a secret knowledge. It was kept secret. It was in the hidden counsel of God. It was part of his plan, but it was not disclosed, not revealed to man. It was hidden. It was veiled. It was obscured. It was not information given to man, and it was kept secret since the world began. One of my favorite illustrations about the limitations of human knowledge has to do with Adam in the Garden of Eden. Adam was told to name the animals. Adam was told that all of the uh, fruit of the trees was good to eat and was for him except for one that was one that he could not eat from. And if he ate from it, he would immediately die. Of course, that death was a spiritual death and alienation from the life of God. It wasn't physical death. And so what I point out is that Adam, who's brilliant, he had an IQ probably in the 500 somewhere, much more bright than anybody on the planet today. Uh, just unbelievably brilliant. He is given the task of naming the animals, and it doesn't take him long before he realizes that the animals are in pairs. There's a male, there's a female, and he's all by himself. So God is letting him discover the fact that he is alone and there's no one comparable to him, and then God will fulfill that by giving him a, a wife, a perfect wife, and they will be there together in the garden until, uh, un, until they sin. But... 
of all the things they could learn by observation, by experience, that's known as empiricism, of all the things they could learn by experience, they couldn't learn that there was something about that one tree that meant that they shouldn't eat from it. All the others look great. It probably did too. It wasn't a thorn bush. Thorns don't come in until after the fall. It wasn't ugly. It didn't look wilted. When he looked at it, he didn't hear bass notes uh, from some uh, musical rendition that indicating the villain is coming on the scene. He, he, it looked like all the other trees. And it was attractive and it was pleasant to the eyes. There was nothing in his experience that could tell him there was something wrong with that tree. Nothing in his reason. He couldn't argue from logic. He couldn't, uh, he had no, uh, no assumptions. He had no evidence that he, from which he could reason that that tree, that tree, I can't eat from that tree. He couldn't get information. So apart from God telling him that there was something wrong and he couldn't eat from that tree, he wouldn't have known it. And see, that's the way it is with Revelation. We can know a lot of things. We can know a lot of true things. We can know a lot of things that are accurate. But our overall understanding of reality needs God's revelation. God needs to speak to us, and God needs to tell us certain things. Otherwise, we're missing key elements. And that's what the mystery doctrine is. It is that there has to be something special. There's no way that you could go back to the Old Testament and discover that God was going to create a new people of God that would be comprised of Jew and Gentile equally as one new man, one new body, one new temple. You couldn't get it from experience. You couldn't get it from any other way that from that other than from revelation. God had to disclose this. Otherwise, it would remain a secret. Now, I have a lot more that I was going to cover, but I think we're just going to look at a couple of other passages before we get into uh, this next topic, which may have to wait for a while. But Paul uses this term, uh, apocalypsis, several times. He says in 2 Corinthians 12, 7, that he has had many revelations, an abundance of revelations, and that God gave him this thorn in the flesh, allowed that to happen. I believe it's a persecution uh, that came as a result of Satan stirring up people against him. And he, he, God allowed that to continue, desired that that would continue, permitted that to continue uh, because of the abundance of information that God gave to Paul so that he would not be proud or arrogant. So he's given this thorn in the flesh, an angelos, a messenger of Satan. So I believe that's a, a demon who is orchestrating this opposition, which you pick up in subsequent verses. Galatians 1.12, Paul says, For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. So his understanding of the gospel in the narrow sense and in the broad sense came from the Lord Jesus Christ. And in Galatians 2.2, 2, he says, And I went up by revelation. So God gives him special revelation to go up to Jerusalem to meet with the other apostles. Now, what I want to do from here, and I may just briefly introduce this, is what the Bible teaches about divine revelation. This is so important, and this is foundational to understanding what's going on in this passage. And so I think today I'm just going to focus on a couple of these key words at the very beginning. We've got the one word we've looked at already, apocalypsis, which means revelation or disclosure. That's the noun. Or apocalypto, which is the verb meaning to uncover, to disclose, to reveal, 
It's the opposite of cover-up. It's the opposite of conceal. It's the opposite of obscuring. And then the second word is norizo. It God makes something known. We have a group of people that we refer to as agnostics. Gnosis, from which it's the core of that word, from which it derives. Gnosis is the noun form for knowledge. This word norizo, ending in that o, is a verb. And it, it has to do with making something known. What you have with agnostics is they say, well, we can't know these things. We're not sure. I always like what Norm Geisler's response was. You talk to an agnostic, better than talking to an atheist, talk to an agnostic say, well, I don't know for sure. Well, do you know that for sure? Now, if you know that for sure, then that's our starting point, that, that you can know something for sure. So maybe there's something else you can know for sure. Maybe there's other things you, you can have certain knowledge about. So norizo is the fact that God gives us knowledge. It's not feelings. It's not emotion. It's not mysticism. It is God gives us knowledge. God gives us information. And that is critical to being able to understand life, to being able to interpret the events around us, and to know about our salvation and our eternal uh, destiny. This word is used in Luke 2.15 where the angels have been given the information that the Savior has been born in Bethlehem. And in verse 15 we read, So it was when the angels had gone away from them into heaven, after the angels had appeared to them, that the shepherds said to one another, Let us now go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. Now, that doesn't mean that the Lord appeared to them, but the Lord sent his angels to give them that information. They wouldn't have known it any other way. And so they go to Bethlehem to see the infant Jesus. Next key word is phanerao, which means to make something known or to reveal, to enlighten, to manifest something. And this word also is used in this, in this passage. The noun form, phonorosis, means a revelation, a manifestation, or a disclosure. And that's the word that is used here in Romans 16.25, which we just examined, that uh, it's according to the revelation of the mystery kept secret since the world began. So we're going to have this manifestation, this disclosure of information that is the foundation of understanding that which has been concealed uh, from eternity past uh, and is now revealed to the church. And this is what we understand as the mystery doctrine. So we'll come back uh, next time. I will not be here next Sunday. Uh, Ray Mondragon, who is a professor at Schaefer Seminary, will be here this week. I'm taking a little vacation and will be gone out of town, not responding to a whole lot. And I will be out of town for the next uh, the next week. And Ray Mondragon will be coming, and he will be teaching. He's a great teacher. Ray always comes up with tremendous insights. I have come to really appreciate his scholarship. And he will be teaching on Tuesday night, on Thursday night, and again next Sunday morning. And so in two weeks, we'll come back and pick this study up 
as we go forward in, in Ephesians with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to be reminded of your plan and purpose that from eternity past you had this plan, you had this purpose of our salvation and the uh, uniqueness of the church age. You knew it. It was not a surprise to you that Israel would reject their Messiah. You always had a plan and a purpose, a, a phenomenal plan. And as a result of this, this plan, we as Gentiles are included in a unique way with the Jews in this new man, this new body, this new temple. Father, we pray that you'd help us to understand why that should transform our understanding of who we are, that we should not think in terms of all of the secondary issues that uh, distract so many people uh, that they are disappointed in in themselves with the world calls of poor self-image and what the Bible just calls carnality or sin. We need to be transformed by the renewing of our mind that we have a new identity in Christ, and that's what should focus us on our mission and our ministry in this life. Father, we pray that the gospel has been made clear today to those who are listening who may not be saved, that all you must do is to trust in Christ as your Savior, to believe in Him, that He is a unique God-man who died on the cross for our sins. He suffered for our sins. He was buried and on the third day, rose from the dead, and that He is the one who paid the penalty. So all we have to do is trust in Him, to accept Him, to believe Him, and that at that instant... You know what we believe, and you give us eternal life, Father, for which we are so grateful. And now we ask that you would help those who have studied this today to think about it, to reflect upon it, that God the Holy Spirit can use it to transform us into the image of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.